Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host, Christine Lamberson. Today, I'll be speaking with Jennifer Delton, who is a professor of history at Skidmore College. We'll be talking about her new book, Rethinking the 1950s, How Anti-Communism and the Cold War Made America Liberal. This book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. In this book, Delton argues that the 1950s were, in fact, much more liberal and much less conservative than we often think. It's a great book, and I'm really excited to have Jennifer here with us today. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's get started. Could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a historian? Um, uh, let's see. I, I'm i from Minnesota, and I went to the University of Minnesota a little bit late. I took off some time, but when I got there, I just seemed to have a knack for history. I was in the American Studies program. I had great mentors there, and um, it just kind of took off. I got an interest, and it seemed to be something that I was ideally suited for. So that led to graduate school, and then that led to you know teaching. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in writing this particular book? So the reason I was interested in writing this particular book had a lot to do with the disjuncture between what I had been taught as a student about um, the post-war, post-World War II political climate, about the Cold War, about the actors in that. So my first book actually was about Hubert Humphrey and the founding of the Farmer Labor, um, Demo- the Democratic Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota. And I had been, just given the what I had been taught by my professors, I kind of thought of uh, Hubert Humphrey as an anti-communist and uh, someone who came along and took the Farmer Labor Party, which was a great grassroots organization, and, you know, stripped of, of its radical potential and made it into, you know, the Democratic, and you know, simply an interest group in the Democratic Party. And, uh, and so I was researching this, and that didn't at all seem what had happened. Uh, the more I got into the sources, the more it seemed as though Humphrey was really up against the, uh, a tough uh, communist presence in the Farmer Labor Party. And if anything, the communists were the ones that were messing up the politics and getting in the way of a genuine uh, indigenous grassroots movement. They seemed to be um, the ones that were causing problems. So that was... You know, doing that first book, that was my dissertation and became my first book. And I had a lot um, more respect and sympathy for Hubert Humphrey than I did going into the project after I, came, you know, after I had done the research and written the book. And so similarly with, you know, I, then I started questioning, um, you know, that, you know, Humphrey may have been anti-communist, but that didn't necessarily mean he was conservative. Look, he was a civil rights person. He uh, was a labor person. He was very forthright. He stood up to the Dixiecrats. And I kept, and I understood from 
my professors that, well, yes, but he was just trying to co-opt a radical agenda. But there, there was just something wrong-headed about seeing Humphrey as conservative. Um, and so, similarly, the more I studied the 1950s, um, it seemed that they were actually a little bit more liberal. But what really, in terms of writing this book, it, it kind of was, it built up over a couple years of teaching and, and reading and doing research. But Paul Krugman wrote a book um, in the, I don't know, in 2000s, early 2000s, and he's an economist, fairly um, you know, liberal left economist writing today. And he looked back at the 1950s, and, and the, that was his childhood, and he said, you know, we were a different country then. And he called his book Conscious of a Liberal, and he said, what happened to that country that used to believe uh, that the government could be a source of progress and that we could be, that the government could actually make the nation stronger and freer, more democratic. Um, where has that idea gone? And of course, he's writing in 2007 after the right has take, completely taken over politics and denunciated liberals. But, you know, he wrote that book and I said, you know, that is absolutely right. But Krugman in that book doesn't attribute any of that, um, of what he's describing, the, the very high tax rates that existed in the 1950s, the very strong unions that existed in the 1950s, uh, the, cor- the, the re- um, corporations were somewhat more responsible in the 1950s. He, he doesn't connect that to the Cold War and anti-communism. And that's kind of what I did in my book as I started thinking about this and saying, well, you know, it's not just a coincidence that this very liberal time that Paul Krugman remembers um, that didn't come from nowhere. What what were the forces behind that? And so, and in fact, in Krugman's book, he sees you know he identifies anti communism and McCarthyism as something that you know that that was still on the right and something that the liberals had to fight. Um, but but I said no. I think actually the reason the 1950s were looked the way Krugman thinks they looked is because is precisely because of the anti-communism and the Cold War. Because the Cold War um, and fighting communists gave um, not just liberals, but even someone like President Eisenhower a reason to try to make capitalism work for all people, not just for the rich. And that was really what was behind a lot of the programs that Eisenhower instituted. So I'm curious, you title your book, Rethinking the 1950s. So part of what I'm wondering here is, what are we rethinking? How do we think of the 1950s before? Okay, how we thought about the 1950s before. Uh, And in fact, we still think about the 1950s this way, and I still do. I mean, I'm not, I mean, it's kind of a, um, a little, you know, polemical in, in some sense, because it's not as though there aren't reasons to think of the 1950s as conservative. And it's not as though there aren't reasons to say that anti-communism had a very uh, dampening effect on American radicalism. It really did scare uh, radicals. And it, um, it, it, um, there, there was a sense of the narrowing of political possibilities. So what historians typically say, and they're not wrong, that they say that basically you have an anti-communist, a scare that paints any radical idea, any attempt to alter the capitalist system or even reform the capitalist system as, uh, as pro-communist. 
And so liberals and uh, activists of the 1930s who'd been fighting for the New Deal, they looked at McCarthy and saw him as, McCarthy is basically, and, and Nixon and all of the people who are leading the anti-communist charge, they're basically targeting the New Deal. They're making it impossible for us to expand the social welfare program. They're making it impossible for us to expand the rights of labor because every time we try to do that, they shout communist. So there is something about anti-communism, and especially McCarthyism, that has a dampening effect on communi- on on, um, Amer- on the culture in the 1950s, on the political culture in the 1950s. It is also true that the development of a national security state, where you're taking uh, the, the money and the resources that might have gone to social welfare, are now being put into developing um, a national security state. So, you know, in 1954, 70% of the U.S. budget is marked for defense-related items. And that's 70% of the budget that's not going to domestic concerns. So that is an argument that historians make, and it's a, it's a valid argument. And uh, historians also will say about... Um, the Cold War is that it, it put us in this uh, a militaristic frame of mind, and rather than uh, using the United Nations or negotiating or having multilateral agreements, American foreign policy was conducted, uh, you know, basically by the uh, National Security Association and the CIA, and it, um, uh, it favored militaristic options. And so that is an argument uh, people make. The historians will also say that um, that basically the the Cold War was a war for capitalism. It was a war for American imperialism. Uh, what the United States was really fighting for was uh, to keep markets open, and it was you know a, it was a war of American imperialism. And and that too, that's a, there are many persuasive um, arguments in that line of thought. So. Um, all of these, the, the idea that the Cold War and anti-communism were repressive, that they took up resources um, that could have better gone into the development of social welfare, that they shut down political possibilities, that they uh, shut down the civil rights movement, that there had been a vibrant act of civil rights movement with a strong uh, basis in um, the, the communist left. All of that is shut down. And so that, those are the reasons historians say that there was a definite turn to the right. Um, and so when I, you know, yes, what am I doing in the book in terms of rethinking the 50s? I'm rethinking that particular narrative. Um, but I'm also asking us to reconsider whether anti-communism is always a conservative force. I'm not denying that it can be a conservative force, but there are other ways in which it has operated to make us be better than we would have been otherwise, given the long history in the United States of our, um, our liberal tradition. And the liberal tradition, when, when historians refer to the liberal tradition, what they're referring to is an anti-statist tradition, not, not a progressive tradition. <laughs> they're, they're, they're referring to uh, the idea that the, that government is best which governs least. It comes from John Locke. It was, it was put into the Constitution where the founders had tried to, uh, you know, keep the state, uh, you know, divided the, um, the powers to keep the state as, as small as possible so that it would not become a tyranny. And so that liberal tradition, which is an anti-statist tradition, um, that's very strong in U.S. history. And, the, and really the only thing that ever has been able to surmount that tradition 
has been the communist threat. And so that's why I'm asking people to to rethink both, you know, rethink both were the 1950s as conservative as we thought they were? Was there actually a right turn? But also I'm asking people to rethink whether anti-communism and the Cold War were wholly negative. And again, from the perspective of, of someone who's a progressive liberal thinker. Sure. So that makes a lot of sense. And all of the things that you've said in, in your book really resonate with me, both in terms of what I learned as far as what you're framing as the tradition, kind of traditional narrative, we might say, mm-hmm. and the things that you're saying uh, in terms of rethinking the 1950s. Um, and I was, I have a bunch of different questions, sort of different directions to, to go from there. Um, but one thing that I was curious about is how, um, how we think about this, traditional narrative and then your rethinking of this in terms of a lot of new history, thinking about the conservative movement and thinking about uh, the seeds of the conservative movement in the 1950s. Because one thing that strikes me that's a little contradictory almost is that all the things you just said seem really true to me. But then yet we also have this new conservative historiography, this new lots of discussions about the origins of the conservative movement today. And we often say, oh, look, it started in the 1950s and kind of nobody noticed because people mm-hmm. didn't think of, uh, they thought of the conservative movement as dead because of mm-hmm. the, the New Deal. And I was wondering kind of how, how those things fit together. Yeah, I mean, people did think the conservative movement was dead. And I don't. I don't see a contradiction there. I mean, um, I've read um, this historiography. I mean, Kim Phillips Fine's written that great book called Invisible Hand, and um, but and she notes that if you look at these conservative business groups that will later, around the time of Goldwater in 1964, become prominent in Goldwater's campaign, in the 1950s they are very marginal. Uh, the conservative movement does get started in the 1950s. I think you can really pinpoint it to uh, William F. Buckley Jr. Find you know he um, starts the National Review in 1955, and that really does bring together the first new right because Buckley is able to um, unite the very dis- there are a lot of different conservative types of conservatives in the United States, but they're not actually in a movement together, and they don't see themselves as a movement. And what Buckley does is pull them all in. So the traditionalists, the libertarians, the, um, uh, the anti-communists of various sorts, uh, there are a lot of different components, and he, he pulls them together. And um, so it, that's absolutely right, but that is a very small, marginal uh, movement people, uh, the opinion makers, um, mainstream society at this point uh, is very dismissive. Um, Lionel Tri- uh, Trilling, who's a literary critic, you know, he very famously dismissed conservatism as an irritable gesture. And then Louis Hartz wrote the book, The Liberal Tradition in America, which is, he was referring to that Lockean tradition and saying, you know, that, that's liberal, that's not conservative. There, in fact, Hartz said there is no conservative tradition in the United States. And the people who held on to this idea, I mean, so the liberals and the New Dealers had put forth this idea that, you know, basically, as the economy became more interdependent, as the um, economy became more nationally integrated and was no longer just regional, the politics and the government would have to change as well. And that was just the way liberals saw it and the New Dealers saw it is that's just history. 
you know, you have to adapt and change your political institutions to be able to function in the new economic reality of, you know, the nationalization of politics. And today we'd call that the globalization of politics. The same political processes are happening. They're making the, the world smaller. And we have to be able to act as a government against that. So the liberal argument, that's what they said. That was their justification, why you had to expand the power of the state into areas where the state hadn't typically gone before. And um, the conservatives said, no, that's ridiculous. Any kind of expansion of the state is going to lead to tyranny. That's the way it is. And... Um, but people who said that and, and who still held on to this idea of laissez-faire um, a capitalism, which is the kind of capitalism that didn't need any state intervention, you know, liberals called that a myth. It never had actually existed, but conservatives held on to that. And um, they were just seen as backwards. They were just seen as behind the times. And so even though we can now look and see Buckley and his crew organizing and uh, other foundation, like the Foundation for Economic Education and J. Howard Pugh is funding a lot of these organizations, but those are all very small and they see themselves in a minority. They see themselves as beleaguered and, and they really are beleaguered. So that, you know, I don't think that there's necessarily a contradiction. Yeah, the, the, that, that movement's going to grow, but it starts out very small and it's very marginal in the 1950s. Okay. So that movement is very small, and we have this more liberal than often we remember um, consensus going on or, or mainstream thought going on in the rest of society. So I was thinking that maybe you could tell us about, um, you talk about several different groups, you talk a little bit about some leftist groups, you talk about civil rights, you talk about uh, businessmen. If you might be willing to pick out sort of one of your favorites to give us a taste of or give our listeners a taste of what people are thinking. What is sort of, uh, so if we were talking about the businessmen, what is the general consensus among these more liberal than often remembered businessmen? How are they looking at their role in American society differently than we usually think of it? These businessmen, and I I call them in my book uh, corporate liberals, um, and what I mean by that is they are the heads of very large multi-divisional companies that appreciate the government stepping in to manage the economy. So we'd call it the macro economy today. That the government, through um, policies of, of taxation and monetary policies and making loans available and uh, a number of different um, things the government can do to make sure that the economy runs smoothly, to try to temper you know, a regular free market economy is it's peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. But if you've got a huge company like U.S. Steel or GM and you need to plan and do long-term planning, the peaks and valleys are, I mean, you want to do long-term valleys and that you want the economy to be as smooth as possible. And if the government can put into place policies that will smooth out those peaks and valleys of economic activity, that's going to make a more secure investment environment and it's going to ensure the smoother running of capitalism and especially the smoother run of the, these large, very hulking corporations that, uh, you know, can't, um, you know, they, they can't just, you know, downsize. I mean, they, they need to have in place um, 
a very stable economic environment. So they are often the heads of the largest corporations. It's General Motors, it's GE, it's Ford. And there might be some executives that work in those corporations that are more conservative, but the general demeanor of all of them is that we are now going to cooperate. And um, their management technique at this time are also in keeping um, with the spirit of pluralism um, there's a management technique called human relations, um, and it emphasizes that it's not – so, again, and what I'm trying to understand here is why businessmen like these corporate liberals were, were able to give up this idea of rugged individualism and say that idea is – and rugged individualism and laissez-faire uh, policies, those are no longer appropriate for the kind of business we run. And I just explained how laissez-faire isn't appropriate because they need the government to step in to make sure the macro economy is stable. But even in their own management, they're um, far more interested in making sure that workers are taken care of, um, and, and not just to avoid unions. They have a sense that people work as a team, and what we need to do to manage people is not tell them you know, to get their individual productivity up, but to understand that the workplace is like a well-oiled machine, and everyone has their part, and what we need to make sure to do is everyone gets along together. And so if there are problems, it's not because someone's not pulling his weight, it's because there's some way in which the workplace atmosphere is not being productive. We have to look at all the people. So there's a tremendous emphasis on teamwork, on um, on balancing the different parts of the corporation, and all of this contributes to the idea that it's no longer just the individual. In fact, Peter Drucker writes a book in, in 1950 called The New Society, where he's trying to, to get um, corporate heads to understand this, that no one individual worker... Um, is really that important. It's not about the individual worker. The real work that's being done is how well can you coordinate all of these different workers into a smooth-running machine, um, which has the effect of lessening the importance of individualism and making it more important to understand the, the group as a whole. And this is, again... Um, it flies in the face of that individual pull up your own bootstraps idea because Drucker says no one can pull up you know no one can pull up themselves by their own bootstraps because they're part of these much larger corporate uh, machines and it can work for them but what that means and what this also meant for Drucker is that. And because a man's livelihood really depends on that corporation, the corporation has a responsibility to make sure that they're to cut down on unemployment by trying to institute um, employment stabilization, to do long-term planning to make sure that people aren't being let off. When, for instance, it used to be the case that if if companies had a slower range of orders, workers would be let go. And Drucker says, do the long-term planning so you don't have to let workers go. Um, and so it changes the way management thinks. These these a variety of these management te- techniques change the way, and they actually have a much a philosophy that resembles much more the kind of liberal interest group pluralism that is dominant during this uh, era. I don't know if that uh, gets at it. Oh, the other part about the businessmen is they're also very interested in being modern and forward-looking um, and providing leadership in the world, and that means letting go of uh, their anti-unionism, letting go of... Um, 
uh, racism. And again, it's these are mainly rhetorical gestures, but it's a change in attitude that we want to be open. Um, we have responsibility. They adopt a sense of social responsibility. Part of that human relations philosophy I was talking about is understanding that there are stakeholders in the corporation. It's not just about the bottom line. You have to satisfy the stockholders, but you also have to take care of employees. You also have responsibilities to the community in which your plant is in, and you also have responsibilities to the consumers. That's part of that whole human relations management um, uh, these are techniques or philosophy that they've all that they've mostly adopted in their corporations. Yeah, that absolutely gets at the heart of the question. So then, um, the next question, because that all sounds wonderful, that sounds like a great business philosophy, right? So yeah. how? How does anti-communism in the Cold War really make this a moment or help make this a moment where not just that business philosophy, but this general philosophy that you're talking about uh, make that philosophy dominant? Well, in many, so for the capitalists, they're saying um, this, is, this is actually going to make capitalism work for everyone. And, and that's, that's what the large struggle is, is to, to get people to see that capitalism is not the, um, uh, you know, the Gilded Age um, uh, fat cats who are using all the money and getting richer while the poor are getting poorer. That is a mistaken, and the, and the capitalists, the corporate liberals say that is an old-fashioned idea. That is uh, really what the propaganda that communists tell you what capitalism is, but we have, we have changed. We've adapted, we've reformed, and we understand that capitalism works by, um, by making sure people have money to buy products, and that's what we want. So we are going to support government policies that put money into the pockets of consumers, and that would be like government-backed mortgages, um, and things that help, uh, you know, up for in- and also higher wages, you know, if, if, if there's going to be a minimum wage, because that means that consumers are going to have money, and if consumers have money, they'll buy things, and that'll keep copy, capitalism going. And they said, in terms of um, if I, the communist threat, it's what we have to do is show the world that it's possible to have a capitalist nation that um, also provides for racial justice and economic equality, and and we can make that happen. Mm-hmm. So... I have one question that's a little kind of going in a slightly different direction before we kind of bring these things together. But one of the things that you do in a lot of your book is you, and when we started and you were talking about Humphrey, you were sort of doing this, is you're taking events and um, practices of liberal organizations or conservative organizations, or you're taking practices of uh, like Hollywood and their anti-communism, and you're reframing how we think about it. Or to put it another way, you're saying that something that we have sometimes labeled as a conservative gesture or uh, an anti-communism within a liberal group that we have often sort of thought of as being a reaction to conservative anti-communism. And you're saying, no, those are actually liberal anti-communists, right? You're saying Mm -hmm. kind of relabeling we already knew that this is what they were doing and you're relabeling their motivation might be one way I think is accurate statement. Yeah. Or, or getting, you know, I think it's coming from a different, I mean, a lot of what I'm doing in the book is, um, saying, you know, 
it's a, it's a question of your perspective. So looking mm-hmm. at it from the 1930s, when there were a lot of radical options available, and the United States was toying with the idea of having, you know, kind of a full welfare state with national health care and cradle-to-grave social insurance, like what Britain ended up with after the war. You know, that doesn't happen in the United States. And so historians wondered why. And they said, well, it's because the Cold War and anti-communism scared people. That made people that, that gave way too much p- power to the state, and, and it would be communistic. And, and it scared people away from that radical idea. But I'm looking at so, – so, so from the 1930s, when there were a lot of different possibilities where there were um, – where American liberals had very different uh, aspirations, yeah, the 1950s does seem to be a bit of a – a downer for them because, <laughs> because the, the, there are certain political uh, avenues are shut off. Um, now, first of all, I mean, that assumes that they would have been open, which I actually don't know if I agree with, but that's what historians say is that there were a lot of ideas in the 1930s that never got a chance to get enacted because they were, they were just squashed by anti-communism in the Cold War. So, um, and from the 1930s, that's a very persuasive argument if you look at it from the point of view of the 1930s. But if you look at it from the point of view of today, where we can't, um, you know, where Obama just got this health care thing through that is more minor than something that Eisenhower supported. And, and that has caused the right in the country to call Obama a socialist, a communist, all of these things. Um, you know, his um, stimulus pack- package widely vilified where the government right now cannot even be supplied, is not even being funded uh, to do just the normal work of government, like national parks and roads and infrastructure stuff that had been taken for granted until the, uh, until the 2000s when the Republicans took over the Congress and has made, have made it really almost impossible to get anyone to think of the government as in any way being do it able to do anything in a positive manner that would contribute to uh, democracy rather than hinder it. You know, and I guess a lot of people would say, you know, this starts with Reagan who comes in and says, you know, uh, this isn't a problem uh, that the government can solve. This is a problem. This is a problem of government. Um, you know, but then the Republicans have steadily, and it's not just the Republicans, it's, it's this conservative kind of Republicanism that has identified the state as the enemy and the a state as the hinderer of all economic activity and has basically tried to, um, uh, what do you call it, weaken it in, in in, in any way possible. That's the uh, Grover Norquist, one of these con- really conservative, you know, says, starve the beast. We aren't going to give any money to support the federal behemoth. And so from, from the rhetoric that exists today that we are surrounded with that is our political system today, I'm just saying, boy, you look back at the 1950s and here you got a Republican Party that's supporting a minimum wage, that's supporting equal rights for women, that's supporting uh, labor unions. You don't, you just don't see the Republican Party doing those things. So it's just, it's really more of a question of perspective. Mm -hmm. So then my next question would be, how do we get this so wrong? I mean, how do we get this so wrong as historians? But also what strikes me is even more than historiography, is it you know, when I'm lecturing about the 1950s, I open by asking my students what they know about the 1950s. You know, the 1950s are often painted as this, you know, time of traditional America. And there's a kind of certain 
public conservatism that's attached to the 1950s. How is it that we're, we have this image that is incorrect? Well, again, I don't. Or sorry, I don't want to argue against. Yeah, I don't want to argue against my own book, but you know, it's it's not that it's incorrect. Um, and and I mean, one of the reasons is because the people who wrote about the 1950s first, like liberals in the 1950s, actually did experience it as a right turn. So you know, people like Arthur Schlesinger Jr., people who are writing the the books about the 1950s first, the historians who are first writing about the 1950s, they look at the 1950s and they say, "Oh my God, it's it's a Republican Party has controlled, you know, basically um, the presidency and." Um, through all of the 1950s, and Adlai Stevenson, who was the Democrat's uh, candidate, uh, was defeated twice. And you had um, a Cold War that did seem to have some very militaristic uh, and um, rhetoric. Now, liberals also supported the Cold War, but they were more open to using the United Nations than what ended up happening. So the liberals at the time, living through the 1950s, they saw the 1950s as very complacent and conservative, and especially because of the prosperity and the suburbanization, and there was this, a great deal of concern about the conformity that was being um, uh, the, that seemed to mark, you know, suburbia. So it seemed as though it did see, you know, and and. Eisenhower's image as this kind of golfer, and, and Eisenhower just seems so white. When you look back at pictures of him, he seems even whiter than a white person. He's just, um, all of these things contribute to that and the suburbanization. Uh, and what's interesting to me is, so there is this sense of complacency that comes with prosperity, and a lot of liberals are wringing their hands thinking, you know, we, we we can't get complacent. We, there are a lot of social problems you have to deal with. Look at the race problem. There's still uh, you know pockets of poverty they'll start thinking about, and so they they see the fifties in a very um not in fact fairly negative way because they're liberals and they want to improve the world. So they're looking for the faults. And to the extent that liberals historians who have written it have had this perspective, we've inherited that. And again, it's not that it's wrong. Um, there is suburbanization and conformity, but what's interesting about the suburbanization and, you know, people tend to see that as conservative because, you know, for instance, Levitt, who was the developer of the uh, Levitt town, you know, he said, well, you know, no man can be a communist if, if he has a home, if he owns a home, because he's got too much to do. He's too busy. And so there is this sense that, could, you know, suburbanization is, you know, a part of this conservative term. I think the thing that's interesting to remember, though, um, is that it's really the reason you have suburbanization is because working people finally have money to spend on houses. And they can move out of the city. <clears throat> they can move out of those old ethnic neighborhoods in the city uh, if they are white. And, um, you know, the the situation for blacks is, is very different uh, because of the redlining uh, that's involved in those federal loans. But basically what's happened is the middle class has expanded. And because of Eisenhower's Keynesian demand-side economic policies, the working class does have money in its pockets. And it can buy a house. And it can buy a car. Uh, and so those, all of that suburbanization is actually the result of the expansion of, of the redistribution of wealth, basically. 
So, you know, it's, but I mean, you originally asked me, why do we have this mistaken view? And again, I, I don't think the view is mistaken. I think what we have to do is be able to hold two uh, interpretations in our head at the same time, right. you know, so that the 1950s were very conservative in many ways. Um, and, and, you know, it's hard to look at Leave it to Beaver and, and look at the role, the status of women in the 1950s and not see it that way. Um, but at the same time, there are uh, there's a lot of other things happening. Um, and I think, you know, the reason we miss it is because that that um, definition really took over, especially after the 1960s, because, you know, our, our, the way we in- interpret these decades, you know, again, it's not as though history falls neatly into decades for us, but generally there is this sense that, you know, compared to either the radical 30s or the radical 60s, the 50s was this time in between that was very, where people weren't interested in fighting poverty or, you know, um, doing all the radical things, you know, that happened in the 1960s. So I I think that's another reason we tend to think of the 50s as, as very conservative. And again, in many ways, it really was. I don't, you know... It's, I can't argue against that. All I'm asking is for people to see that it was also, you know, in terms of economic policy, in terms of the political economy, and, in, and really in terms of the politics, uh, also very liberal. Right. By today's you know, standards. Yeah. I asked you a very unnuanced question, and you're asking us to think with more nuance about the yeah. 1950s. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you one more kind of a uh, more specific question about your book as one figure who's important in your book and who you've mentioned several times, but we haven't talked too much about is Eisenhower. Right? Mm-hmm. And so how does this change our image of Eisenhower's legacy or how does this, uh, or what, what is Eisenhower's legacy coming out of this moment? Well, again, it really depends on who you're talking to and what, uh, what issue you're interested in. Um, I mean, Eisenhower, everyone always knew he was a moderate Republican. Um, he uh, defeats, you know, when he defeats Robert Taft in 1952 for the uh, Republican presidential primary, you know, who's going to run for president, that's widely seen as the victory of the moderate Republicans over the conservative Republicans. And so, you know, people understood he was a moderate Republican. I think people had tended to forget how moderate the moderate Republicans were. And again, and that's because the history was written by people who tended to support the liberal Democratic Party and or the liberals in the Democratic Party. And the liberals in the Democratic Party were always trying to say, oh, they're not they're not as liberal as we are. And and then the Republicans also wanted to say, no, we're not liberal like the Democrats, you know, because they also have to maintain that there's a separate there's something separating the Republican Party from the Democratic Party. So, you know, a lot of that is us hearing that. um you know, looking at the primary sources and you have moderate Republicans saying, oh, no, we're not liberal like the Democrats. And then the Democrats saying, no, they're not liberal. But they but they were. But anyway, that's I got off track. You asked me about Eisenhower's legacy. So everyone knew he was a moderate Republican uh, to begin with. And his legacy has gone through several uh, transformations since people have been writing about him um, in in terms of I mean, maybe I can just talk about civil rights because that mm-hmm. 
is an issue where I think this really comes out. He, you know, he's, he is, Eisenhower is actually temperamentally a very conservative man. He's brought up in Kansas. He is a Republican. So he's, you know, he's very prudent and cautious and not given to making huge changes or calling for any kind of revolutionary change. So he does have that very conservative demeanor. Um, but he, all, you know, as a president, he has to act pragmatically, and he has to weigh things and and um, you know consider you know the consequences of uh, the world he's uh, has some control over. And so, um, in terms of civil rights, it is absolutely true. He he was not. Uh, I, I wouldn't call him a civil rights. Well, certainly not an activist. Um, and he didn't, I mean, his position on civil rights is, you know, he didn't want to take sides. You know, he, he saw that, well, you've got, you've got the Southerners, white Southerners over here, and then you've got black people here, and they both have good points, and I don't want to take sides. I don't want to see, you know, as if I'm politically involved or politically favoring one side over the other. And Eisenhower also believed that, you know, he would say, you can't legislate morality. You know, we expect that people will treat all human beings as their brothers, but, you know, you can't, the government can't be the person that enforces that or the force that enforces that. Um, and so we should try education and persuasion and things like this to resolve the race problem. He didn't, he did not favor uh, legislation for fair employment, for instance, uh, which would have made it, which would have prohibited, would have been a federal law prohibiting um, employers from discrimination. Uh, he did not favor that. So there are many ways that he is really not on board, but he does understand, and this is again why the Cold War is so important, he understands how um, America's racism, its blatant white supremacy, plays in a world in which the United States is competing to win the hearts and minds of the what's then called the third world, of the people in Africa and Asia. And, and he understands that if people from Africa and Asia look at the United States and see that blacks are in a second-class position, which they are, that that contradicts America's message of democracy, which is what basically America has to sell to the people who are in the state in, the, in those um, areas of the world, in Africa and Asia, uh, of decolonizing, of overthrowing British or, or French or European rule, and who are they going to turn to? Are they going to turn to the Soviet Union, or are they going to turn to the United States? So uh, uh, most American officials uh, in the, the Eisenhower administration understand that civil rights is very important. And in fact, um, Dean Acheson, who was Secretary of State before, you know, during the Truman administration, actually supported Civil Rights Act and um, and certainly uh, the the Brown versus Board of Education. Acheson wrote a, a brief in support of that as Secretary of State. So there are really practical on the ground reasons why the United States has to look has to resolve its civil rights problem, and um, and Eisenhower understands that and so he actually does take actions where he can he does what he doesn't want to do is he doesn't want to wreck the system of federalism which is the state's rights argument that the south has it says i'm not interested in change you know having a constitutional argument about whether states have a right to make their own laws but there are some places where i as president actually can influence the law and I'm going to do that. So he um, desegregates army bases, for instance, because those are federal jurisdiction already. Um, and that's something that Truman hadn't done. I mean, Truman actually declares that he is desegregating the army, but he actually 
doesn't see it through. Eisenhower completes that job. Uh, he um, desegregates army bases. He desegregates army hospitals, army schools. And a lot of these, you know, the South, um, there's a huge military presence in the South. A lot of those defense bases are in the South, and, and he's able to do that. So, um, and, that, and that is huge. He also is able uh, to appoint Supreme court, uh, court, federal court judges that he understands are in favor of civil rights. So, you know, he appoints Earl Warren to be uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court right at the very moment that he understands there's this very important court case about school desegregation. And he knows where Warren stands on that. And he still appoints him Chief Justice. And there, similarly, there at the federal courts in the southern districts, he will support, um, appoint um, people he knows are going to support desegregation. And if you look at the minutia of the civil rights battles through the courts in the southern in the southern states, it's those federal courts that make all the difference in terms of implementing a Brown versus Board and some of the other uh, Supreme Court decisions. And so there are a lot of ways that were just kind of quiet that he did that. And that was also a hallmark. He hated the grandstanding civil rights gesture. He just thought, I'm, uh, you know, if you're grandstanding about something, it takes a little bit away from it. And so he tried to do it very quietly. And he also desegregated Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. was a segregated city since the time of President Wilson, who was a Southerner. And it's Eisenhower that gets rid of Jim Crow in uh, Washington, D.C. And, he, you know, he, he does it because he has the power and he doesn't make a big deal about it. But he does it. So, and and the reason he's doing it is because he understands that uh, that kind of racism and discrimination is incompatible with what the United States is trying to do in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the examples of civil rights are great, and they really do make us look at Eisenhower differently. Even the actions that I often, again, talk about when I'm teaching the act that Eisenhower uh, took are seem few when I'm talking about them, but then when you're talking about them, you're mentioning all of these justices and all of these federal judges, and it really makes it clear just how much influence he had through these little gestures. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have, uh, at risk of being non-historian-like, I wanted to ask you a little bit more of a president presentist, excuse me, question, in terms of what do we do with this information? And of course, you know, reframes or helps us look at the 1950s with a new perspective. Uh, But how does this influence how we think about from the 1950s and even forward, how we think about politics, how we think about uh, political trends and and that kind of broader question? Yeah. um, Well, I mean, that's a lot of people. I I think there's a lot you can do with it, depending upon what you want to do with it. I mean, like when Krugman wrote that book, uh, he was just trying to remind people, and again, in the in the politics of today, that the rhetoric about um, how debilitating a big government is and how uh, it undermines creativity and it makes us a uh, you know unfree and you know all of the anti-government talk that is so prevalent today. It just reminds people we didn't always think that. <laughs> I mean. That there has been, it's been very prevalent in American history. It's been a strong tradition, but 
there have been times when we've been able to let that go and and to me they've been times that have been some of the most we've accomplished some of the most um stunning things i mean you know for me when i look back at the 1950s um i'm interested you know a lot of historians um are very skeptical of nationalism and very eager to talk about transnationalism and finally hoping that nationalism which is so you know the root of so many wars and bigotry that that we can finally let that go but when i look at eisenhower's brand of nationalism i say that if you are interested in using state power to ensure or work for um, income equality or racial justice, if you see the state as having a role to play in that, then you have to have a strong sense of nation. You know, and so, I mean, I, a lot of, you know, what I have it here is a message for liberals who are very quick to discount nationalism because I think nationalism is, is very connected to state building mm-hmm. and and the idea that the state can be have a positive role to play in creating progress in um, creating uh, opportunity in uh, and again I think one of the major issues today that we face is what to do about income inequality I mean this is this is huge we're approaching and or, or tra- going beyond the income inequality that existed in the Gilded Age and you know, people are puzzled about what to do to that. And I said, well, you know, here, look at the 1950s. Um, and, and again, it was, those are the Keynesian uh, economic policies that, you know, were discredited in the uh, 1970s and the 1980s. But um, they did work here. So I just, I mean, it reminds uh, Americans I, uh, that, no, these policies did work and they achieved great things. And the highway is, uh, the inter- the interstate system to me is just a miracle. I, you know, how they, we were able to build that amazing highway system. And if you go anywhere else, not anywhere else in the world, but, you know, many parts of the world don't have anything like that. And, um, and that's what we were able to achieve. And, and Eisenhower was able to do it because he, he had the, a very strong sense of the nation and what a, na- and what a, what a great nation looks like. And a great nation is not a nation that says the government is powerless to intervene in any of these areas, you know. And and so there's part of me that just I want people to think a little bit um, to to not be so dismissive of nationalism, even though I also understand all the problems uh, that come with nationalism and that can have this negative connotation. Again, it's one of these things that well, you know, it also allowed uh, people to do very to do good i think good things and i i guess i like krugman i do share i look at the 50s and i look at that income in uh, equality the 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 high taxes on the rich the progressive tax structure the progressive even on taxing corporations um and, you know, just it's not an impossible liberal dream. It's not liberals with their head in the sky. This is stuff that we've um, had in the United States before, and we've had in an era that most people think are conservative, is conservative. So, you know, it is something that can happen, and it isn't necessarily radicalism or socialism. It's very much in keeping with an American tradition. So, I mean, part of that, that's one of the things. But also, I mean, I, I guess in general, I... You know, if you're a history teacher, you like to teach. You know, you said you were afraid of being presentist, and I, I've often thought that even me saying, if you look at it from today's perspective, is very presentist. But you know, as historians, I don't think we should be afraid of that because that's, I think, one of the lessons of history is that your view of history is going to change as history progresses, and things that you didn't anticipate happening happen, and then you, and then that 
then you have to go back and readjust what you thought. You know, and there's that very famous quotation that apparently didn't happen at all. But, <laughs> but Zhao, Zhao Enlai, some reporter asked Zhao Enlai in China, you know, he said, what, are, um, what do you think were the effects of the French Revolution? And, you know, and this was in the 1970s. And Zhao said, too early to tell. So, you know, I, I mean, I, I like teaching that lesson to students that, you know, a, a lot of times the meaning of the past, is, you know, is going to change depending on... Um, you know, what happens in the present. And I, you know, and, and as a historian, I'd, I'm not uh, fearful of that. I mean, to me, that's, that's one of the fun things about teaching history. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, and I think your book does a particularly good job um, in whether it be for teaching or for historians or whatnot is, as you say, sort of reminding us that there are other perspectives or there are other norms, you know, that we are so ensconced in our own present day political context that we often forget that there could be a totally different um, solution to problems or could be a totally different sort of starting assumption, which in the 1950s, they had a very different set of starting assumptions when they were approaching challenges, which seems to be, you know, really come out in your book. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I will ask you our traditional final question, which is what are you working on now? I'm uh, working on a book about the National Association of Manufacturers, and um, this is a very conservative business group. And a lot of people right now, because you mentioned that people are interested in the history of conservatism, and that name comes up a lot in the history of conservatism because it was such, it was one of these groups that unlike the people I'm talking about in the 1950s, the corporate liberals, held on to this idea of a laissez-faire uh, in rugged individualism, uh, you know, anti-status perspective. Um, and they, you know, they fought the New Deal. They, um, they're, and so, and they fought, I mean, th- this is an organization um, that's been a lot around since 1895. It's still around today. It represents manufacturers, so it's a business interest group. It's a lobbying group. Um, and historians have been interested in them because they were so conservative. And so in the early part of their history, they are really fighting the unions, um, you know, back when Gompers, you know, back in the progressive era, they're very anti-union, anti-labor. In fact, throughout their whole history, they've been anti-labor because they represent employers in manufacturing. And um, no book has been written about this group, and yet they have had a lot of influence in American politics, um, even though... In many ways, they were so extreme that some people said they had no influence, but they actually were, um, uh, they, did, they actually had other parts of their uh, organization was not quite as conservative as their public rhetoric, and so they actually did have important contribution to make. Uh, but they also were kind of like a, um, you know, a staging area for, conservative, for conservatives for, in the rise of the right. So they're also important in that regard. But to me, you know, as someone who's been a political and labor historian of the 20th century, their name, the National Association of Manufacturers, always comes up. In fact, I was, um, and so they're not, people don't know them as much anymore because manufacturing doesn't hold the place in our economy it once did. But I was talking to a friend of mine who's in his 90s, and he said, what are you working on? And I said, I'm working on the National Association of Manufacturers. And he said, the nom, those sons of bitches, why are you writing a book about them? <laughs> so, I mean, this is a very reviled organization. If you're, if you're on the left or if you're a liberal or if you're a labor unionist, this is a really bad organization. But 
I, once again, once you go into the archives, things aren't as they seem. And I have already started work. I've been to, they've got a great, um, complete, and that's what's so amazing that there's no book because their archives are like really, it's huge. Um, and they're at the Hagley Museum in Delaware. And, um, I've already looked into it, and you know they're not. They were conservative. They're anti-labor, but they also, you know, supported uh, unemployment insurance. They supported um, uh, the, this human relations management philosophy I was talking about. I mean, they uh, they support free trade. They're interested in um, uh, uh, de- developing international markets, which again doesn't necessarily comport with the image of them. So there's a lot of ways in which um, I don't think they're not quite um, as completely conservative, or they're not just conservative. There's no way to say they're not conservative. They are. But it's surprising some of the things. For instance, um, the reason I got interested in this project is because they actually do support um, uh, um, hiring uh, minorities and women very early on. Even in the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, they support uh, hiring black people and women and also support hiring the handicapped and they put in place programs to help that along. Um, They didn't believe in legislation because they didn't like legislation in general that constricted them, but they did advocate that uh, employers voluntarily um, expand their labor pools by considering hiring uh, people of color and women. And when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, they did not oppose it. And in fact, they worked to implement it. And so, again, that's the way that, you know, so... They, and I will make the the case, and I've written, I wrote an earlier book in which I made this argument. Um, they actually help implement integra- the workplace integration. They're they're very instrumental in helping that happen. So, um, and anyway, I'm writing the organization of the entire the entire history of this organization. Wow, that sounds really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to reading oh. it. Thank you. Most people don't say that, but yeah. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's a great story about uh, women and integration in yeah. businesses. It's definitely not something that I, I would have expected. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I look forward to that. Thank you again for great. joining us today. Thank you so much. This is really fun. Thanks. Great.